Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. This week, I was lucky enough to be joined by Daniel Satar. Daniel is the CEO of The Big Issue Invest, the social enterprise investment arm of the magazine The Big Issue. They manage or advise on over £250 million. Daniel was a superb guest. He's one of those people that you just want to speak to for hours. We discussed the purpose of the group, how it was founded, and where the balance between raising capital and allocating capital lies, and really, you know, what it means to be an, invest, uh, an impact investor. 2020 has been a tough year for the group, and they've done a phenomenal job given the circumstances which we discuss. But I would urge you to check out the Big Issue Christmas Appeal at bigissue.com forward slash support the big issue. I'll put it in the show notes. Thank you. And without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Daniel Satar, welcome to the podcast. Daniel, what is the purpose of the Big Issue Invest? Well, it really came out of the Big Issue magazine, which was set up in 1991 by John Bird. And in his kind of indomitable John Bird way, he said, hmm, not everybody knows someone rich. And the the reason why he said that was because uh, he happened to know Gordon Roddick, uh, who, of course, was the husband of Anita Roddick. And the two of them set up the Body Shop Foundation out of the Body Shop. And that early support uh, from the Body Shop Foundation, from the Roddicks, really meant that the big issue got off to a good start at the magazine. And John just thought, well, could he connect people who had uh, resources with social entrepreneurs like him, who really needed them? So there were various uh, iterations of this, something called the Social Brokers Network, and gradually it just got momentum. Nigel Kershaw is another key figure in this. He came into the big issue uh, not long after it was founded, and he just got fired up by the idea of well, what we do here in this building today. He thought, could we have a kind of merchant bank for the social sector, for charities and social enterprises? So just as you could in a mainstream commercial merchant bank, you could walk in the door, you could get whatever the financial product or service that you wanted by by coming in there and coming to us at Big Issue Invest. Mm -hmm. So in 2004, he set it up. Uh, Now, we are a minute operation by the uh, size and scale of the mainstream. Uh, We have a lending side with... uh, Currently, 137 clients in the lending um, team, about 23 million of lending capacity. And then we have an investment management side, three uh, investment funds. And those two sides really provide a kind of a core of loans, just like just like any other small to medium-sized enterprises. Charities and social enterprises need access to finance. And if the bank won't quite do it, but it's still bankable, that's really where we come in. So there's the core lending side, 
And then there's the investing side, where we invest in charities and social enterprises that want to grow, because there's that same need. You need to hire a new team to develop the new area that you're operating in, or you need to go from one model of community care to another model of providing community care, and you need the kind of bridge finance to be able to do it. So let's just let's um, just go back a step and and, and um, think about definitions. What is the definition of a uh, social enterprise? So a social enterprise is well, I suppose maybe the, the the stage to go back a step is the definition we're all familiar with, which is um, that of a charity. In fact, we're probably not all familiar with the increasing of the 1601 uh, Charities Act from Elizabeth I that first captured it. Oh, we're all familiar with that. Of course we are. Of course. Of course. And in fact, I, I did run into um, uh, an outfit in, uh, in Bath that was set up around 1200. Uh, so charities have been around a long, long time. And of course, it's got its roots back in um, uh, you know, religious roots. Uh, so... Uh, the Charities Act 1601 modified over various years. So that core idea of a charity, uh, an asset-locked entity uh, that has to fulfill a particular social objective, a charitable purpose. The old ones were relief of poverty, uh, education, um, religion, uh, and I'm uh, I'm struggling with the fourth one. I think we had a generic catch-all that uh, um, that uh, that let us do pretty much anything that was charitable, uh, con- going out from those original principles. So then the concept of social enterprise came about because people started doing things that didn't neatly fit into the uh, original uh, definitions of of charitability, and yet they wanted a vehicle that would let them say to the world. This is an asset-locked entity. Its mission is also locked, like a charity, so that if you put your money into it, somebody can't just run away and change the purpose of it. So from that came the concept of social enterprise. So typically they are a a company limited by guarantee rather than a company limited by shares. So there's a a lock to to the structure. There's an edge to that, which is growing quite strongly, which is the for profit with purpose space. Uh, so you will find uh, organizations like Mustard Seed and in investing in these for-profit-with-purpose entities. Uh, they have a great um, food services company, um, Winnow, that manages some food waste. So they measure the amount of waste produced in a kitchen and uh, methodically feed back where the waste is happening. And then you get this double benefit because that's the core of a social enterprise. It has a double benefit of there's the social purpose, reducing food waste, reducing that environmental impact from from food waste. And it's also a profitable trading uh, enterprise. So behind that as well is an idea that rather than having to constantly come back with the begging bowl to say, look, we're doing great work. Can you just give us another grant? Can you give us another donation? By, um, By trading, by doing this kind of social purpose trading, you're delivering your mission um, as well as uh, being able to run an organisation that can sustain itself. It's an interesting distinction between um, for-profit uh, and um, for-good. And, you know, measuring for-profit is, is pretty easy. You know, mm. you, can, you can see whether or not a company is profitable. The for-good bit is harder. So how does one measure that? Mm. It is... Um, there is something called the... Um, the Impact Management uh, Project, which attempted to do this, 
I think a couple of thousand different entities, organizations, and individuals have fed into that. Uh, and they have, they have a framework for doing it. Uh, there are the, um, the sustainable development goals have popped up as a kind of proxy uh, for, uh, for doing good. But I tend to have a, um, a somewhat uh, heretical view of impact measurement. I call it the kind of obvious view of impact, that if you're having an impact, it's probably obvious. If it's not obvious that you're having an impact, you're probably not having an impact. But there is a caveat to this. Uh, there is a reason why I'm wrong. Um, and that is that my, my elder brother, um, when, he, when he grew up, uh, he just carried on playing with his toys. His toys just got bigger and bigger. So he now does, um, he does software for flight simulators. So he gets to play with very big toys, these big flight simulators. So he tells me that you can fly by the seat of your pants during the day, but you can't at night. Um, except so what you need are something four very simple instruments. Are your, you know, is your, no is your nose pointing up or down? That's kind of good to know. Are your wings level? So basically you're kind of flying level. Uh, are you flying fast enough? So is your airspeed high enough to stay in the air? And a kind of compass um, helps as well, so you know your direction. So I think there's something there in social impact measurement that is about what are your basic indicators that you're comparing against to know whether you're flying well or not well. I think all of that is in some ways, it's just data and it's data points. And it's, it's, so it's a combination of the indicators, the data points, and there's no escape from deep sector knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, if you wandered around the floors of this building, you'd run into energy analysts, transport analysts, housing experts. So just in the same way, we need experts in care. So when somebody pops up and says, oh, that Dutch model of community care, Bertzel, where they um, basically sack the management, uh, form the care workers into self-organizing te uh, teams with coaches, um, and uh, use an IT rostering system around people's skills and the needs of people being cared for, uh, which has uh, extremely high care quality outcomes as well as cost savings. So when somebody says, hmm, we want to replicate that in the UK as Cornerstone, one of our investees in Scotland, is, uh, is doing, there is no escape from having the sector knowledge and sector expertise about the care sector to be able to say, is that good or not? And that's but then actually, so taking that a step further, what are the, the outcomes and how do you measure the outcomes of a company, of, of, of something like Cornerstone? Uh, with care, I think, is the... Uh, is the answer. And sometimes you have got um, some pretty easy shortcuts. So uh, we can go to the Care Quality Commission and say, what, what were their reports like? If we, we just looked the other day on the lending side at a school for uh, people with special needs, and you just pull the Ofsted report and make sure it makes sense, and you ask your, your experts in the sector. So sometimes there are very standard um, comparators that you can that you can look at, and sometimes not. Um, uh, but but often you will find there are there are people with good technical knowledge, good technical skills, uh, who who basically give you a pretty clear idea of whether something is performing to the indicators you want or, or not. But the other bit is that you you need the same care on your social indicators as you do on your financial um, mm -hmm. ones so that you don't inadvertently measure the wrong thing 
and draw an organization into 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 behaving in not quite the way it would intend. Can you give an example? Mm. So so there is this concept of impact risk. So financial risk is something that uh, we've become more and more familiar with over the over the decades, and we spend a lot of we pay a lot of attention to that. Uh, but impact risk is the the risk that you might not achieve the impacts that you that you seek. So two examples would be many years ago, not in my current role, um, I invested into a, a social impact bond. This was a payment by results scheme, and the purpose of the organization we were going to back was to uh, to intervene with a package of support when a child was about four days away from being taken into institutional care because outcomes from institutional care are not great. So if you can successfully solve the reason for a child needing to go into care, uh, then you have um, better outcomes for the child, better outcomes for the family, and an enormous saving to the uh, to the state. So John Bird, uh, one of his favorite stories is that he had a more expensive education than David Cameron. Uh, David Cameron went to Eton. So you think, what an expensive education. John Bird went to a youth offenders institution uh, for for early on in his uh, uh, in his teens, and it turned him around. Uh, people there really helped him and put him on the right course. But that kind of thing is expensive. So if you get it right, you get better outcomes and you get a saving to the uh, to society, uh, to the local authority. If you get it wrong. What it would mean is that a child who should have been taken into care did not go into care and had negative outcomes from that experience. Uh, a second example would be where we are, we're working with them, uh, with the, uh, the local authority in, in Sheffield and with them South Yorkshire Housing. And we are trying to get people out of long-term institutional care. So a mental health problem shouldn't be a life sentence. Uh, but sometimes it can be if you get stuck in the system. So working closely with the council and with South Yorkshire Housing and their specialist teams, we're trying to get people with long-term mental health problems where it is safe to do so to get them out into the community. So if we get that wrong and if the support services are not good enough, that person has uh, a pretty bad outcome potentially. Uh, in terms of self-harm uh, or harm to others. So that's impact risk. Mm. And if you think financial risk is bad enough, impact risk is is a real risk that something might not work out well. It's Those interesting. Extreme examples. but Yeah, that's interesting. Presumably, I mean, what what are you up against I mean, in, in terms of um, what... What's the hard bit? I mean, presumably there's a, a lot of goodwill. You know, everyone is sort of rooting for you and rooting for good outcomes for these children. Where, do, where are the sort of pinch points? Is it around legislation? Is it around, um, you know, councils not being properly funded? What, what's, the, what's the sort of hard bit in that, just staying with that example? So a guy called uh, David Robertson um, had a good metaphor for it. Uh, he uh, works on a for a long time on a, a community project uh, in East London and then joined um, social finance on their board. And he said it's the problem of, um, uh, if you imagine a kind of eroding path at the top of a cliff uh, and people fall off it and, and then are, um, are lying on the foreshore injured. 
So if you're spending your money on the ambulance service to rescue the people in distress, you don't have the money to build the fence at the top of the cliff to stop them falling off in the first place. So why we're coming in as investors is we're basically saying, pay us to build the fence or the people we work with to build the fence at the top of the cliff. And then when the savings come from the reduced number of uh, accidents and emergency interventions at the bottom of the cliff, uh, repay us for the cost of building the wall and repay us for the risk that we're taking that the whole thing might not um, might not actually work out. Uh, a further erosion of the cliff might happen and our fence may get uh, washed away by the waves. So that's the, that's the kind of concept. So in our mental health example in, in Sheffield, the, the local authority has this dilemma. They must offer their acute service for people with mental health problems. Yet at the same time, they know they need a new service to help people get out of it. And the savings haven't yet happened because they're, you know, the, the project isn't set up. So by us coming in with investors' money and funding the project, we're basically bridging to those future savings as they hope they can save money reducing their more acute services. So going back to the big issue invest, um, what do you think differentiates you from your competitors? We are... I suppose first, the differentiation from the mainstream is in some ways we use mainstream tools for unconventional purposes. So we have our three funds on the fund management side, about 43 million worth of, uh, worth of funds there. They are standard funds, limited partnership um, agreements govern them. They look like a fund, they're governed like it, uh, they operate like it. We have big issue invest fund management, then we have a general partner, we have all the structures that you would expect. So, are they open to the public? I mean, can anyone? No, no. Uh, those are uh, it's, uh, sophisticated investors. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so qualified people. Yeah, yeah. So that, those are more difficult to get into. Uh, our lending side uh, tends to be funded by a mix of uh, government funds, trust and foundation money, uh, bank loans that we've drawn into um, to on lend. So the so in some ways they're quite conventional things that. Uh, uh, that, that we are doing. I think what differentiates ourselves is that when a charity or social enterprise turns up at our door, they see themselves um, uh, in the mirror when we answer the door because we are a social enterprise ourselves. Um, the, the mission of the big issue, uh, enterprising roots out of poverty, is, is there and that informs everything we do. So they, they know you know, when they talk to us about the pandemic, they know we have been through the pandemic ourselves. Mm-hmm. Our colleagues in the um, in the magazine, uh, they were given uh, pretty much not much more than a day or so um, to be told that all their vendors were going to go off the street in the first lockdown. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a you know it was necessary, and the government actually did a really good thing in their support for homeless people in that first lockdown. Um, by um, moving people through hostels into uh, hotel accommodation, which of course was uh, was free, <laughs> was available. Um, well, they paid for it. It wasn't it wasn't cost free. So our vendors went. So in ten days, the magazine pivoted to an online version that you could get from an app store. A subscription um, uh, offering got pushed out. We raised money to support the vendors uh, while they couldn't sell the magazine and gave them all kinds of um, uh, support and interventions. 
So they know we've been through what they have been going through with the same challenges of lockdown. So I think that deep social enterprise route is a, is a really key differentiator. Really interesting. And tell me then, how have you, as a, a social enterprise, coped with it? So that's on the, I can see on the magazine side, um, it's been tough, but there have been some good outcomes. How about you and a biggish invest? It's, uh, so we are, we've, we've got through it, uh, and we've got through it well, but I was thinking back to it the other day, uh, you know, end of March, mm-hmm. at the time. 23rd of March. Yeah, no, no furlough scheme, uh, no government grants, no support for care services. Uh, hospices were, were, were just thinking, oh, how, how all kinds of sectors had absolutely no idea how they were going to get through this. Uh, and those were our, those are our borrowers. So we went to them and said, um, we think the best thing we can do is not take money out of you. So within um, within less than two weeks, we had moved half or half our loan portfolio uh, to no repayments. And we could do that because we could go to our funders in turn and say, look, if we all move together, we can get through this. So will you please waive your interest for the duration of our interest-free payments on to charities and social enterprises we support and pretty much all of our investors um, agreed to to do that so that was quite an incredible piece of solidarity uh, we also got some grant support from access foundation a specialist foundation that supports social investment and that really let us keep the lending team going because of course when you've moved half your people to no pay there's no interest how do you pay for your staff team so as those things started to come through after the first few weeks of the, uh, of the lockdown, we began to get more certainty about how the, how the business was looking. So we were able to get through as Big Issue Invest without furloughing any of our staff. Uh, on the magazine side, they, they did furlough people, uh, but we, we needed everyone in place to work with the borrowers to help them um, and our other investees to get through this. So gradually we... Uh, as other funding streams came on, we ended up doing things like distributing grant money for the National Lotteries Communities Fund. Uh, they had a great program. We worked with uh, four other organizations and we distributed just under 19 million in about five weeks. So we absolutely flew money out the door. Our piece of that was, uh, I think, 3.2 million to 118 organizations. Quite extraordinary. We wrote loans for uh, CBELS, the Coronavirus Business Interruption Scheme. There's a specialist fund for our sector, so we assessed um, loans for that, earned a fee. So we've managed to keep the invest business going through um, all of this. And for our, for our borrowers, almost no one has gone under in this time. It's a feature of the charity and social enterprise sector that they are just incredibly resilient because the great British public loves its charities and social enterprises and wants to support them. Uh, they see, they experience the pandemic uh, and feel there are people who are in a worse place than, than they are. Yeah. Um, no, that's interesting. And if you're um, going back to your sort of process and how you, you sort of look for new um, uh, investment opportunities, I suppose that's what yeah. um, How do you sift through what's the sort of process of the sorting out? It's the uh, social impact first. 
So number one, are they are they delivering that? Now in 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 their own way, pretty much every charity and social enterprise in the in the country is delivering social impact one way or another. Uh, so if they if if we think how they're delivering it is is credible and reasonable, then it's the straight financial analysis that uh, you would do on any uh, loan or investment application. Sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's relatively straightforward. I have a slight <laughs> smile on my face because I'm I'm envisaging the the part of the investment paper where you review the last three years' financials that you know this year and there's a projection. Typically, it's kind of red, 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 and then there's a kind of hopeful black. And that symbolizes the last three years, and then the next year is the hopeful one. Uh, I was actually looking at an external review of our loan portfolio, and relative to our competitors in the sector, we are managing to lend to organizations that have a lower level of net assets, uh, even on a slightly higher turnover than average. So we're really getting to people who are not in great financial shape. That's the whole reason why they need an investment. Uh, and yet, our, our loss rate last year on our lending side was uh, 2.5% is what we wrote off, just wow. under 2.5%, which I think is great by small business banking lending standards. I think a bank would be happy with that. <laughs> yeah. So we've, we've, done, we've done well. It's not, why it's not particularly economic is that most of our loans are smaller loans. So under a quarter of a million um, most, in fact, under our average is under a hundred thousand for a loan size. So the income you get is not really economic to do that. So you have to want to do it, and it's that social mission that drives us to do it. Of course, we have larger loans to community-led housing organisations. I think our largest investment is uh, three point four million uh, in the in the portfolio. Uh, so it's 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 not different yeah. from conventional banking. I'm going to okay, I'm trying to compare it, I suppose, to to an investment process that maybe we might be more familiar with. You know, do you have sort of sector or style biases? Do you say, okay, look, this is a problem. Um, I don't know, mental health in um, you know under 18s is a problem. We need to allocate here. Is there a, is that a, is there a sort of top down conversation, or is it more as of a sort of bottom up? Okay, we have. 100 applications we're going to we think this one's the best and how's the process work it's a it's a mix of those of those things i suppose rolling back uh to say 2000 maybe 2005 so around 2000 um gordon brown uh was chancellor at the time and he looked at what was happening in social investment and he asked uh ronnie um sir ronald cohen uh, to take a look at it. Uh, and uh, Ronald Cohen at the time, before his knighthood, um, took a look at this and it just reminded him of the early days of what he was doing at, at Apex and thought, uh, and he also looked at this, there were some crazy situations. So it used to be that you got no probation support if you were released as a short sentence prisoner. So if you're in jail for less than a year, that has changed now. And uh, you'd be released with £43 in your pocket. And the person most likely to meet you statistically was a drug dealer. Um, well, how far does one have to go back for that situation? Pre-2000s? It, uh, yeah, it actually changed. Um, it changed during the last, uh, the last government. They extended probation support. And, and why they did that was people have been campaigning for this for a long time. 
but they set up something called the Peterborough Social Impact Bond, the first one in the country. And the idea was to prove that if you were to test, if you provided a whole range of support measures to prisoners, so you keep them in touch with their family, uh, you get them on a drug or alcohol uh, rehab program, uh, you get them lined up for um, training opportunities or employment opportunities. So basically, you take away the core reasons why somebody reoffends. And uh, so when they come out, you meet them at the door. You take them out, you get them signed on, you get them into accommodation, and all of those things reduce reoffending. And I think by by doing that little part of the proof piece, I don't think anyone would claim that social impact bond uh, brought about that change in extending um, probation uh, to everyone, uh, but it was part of maybe the, the tip of that long movement, just tipping over uh, to, to get that... Um, uh, to get that extended. Changing tax slightly, um, the, the difference um, between ESG, as you see it, and, and impact investing, because ESG is, is all around us looking at environmental, social and governance issues. Um, how does that type of investing differ to impact? So the ESG investing, responsive investing. Actually, there's an extraordinary uh, monument being put up to Tessa Tennant. Uh, Tessa Tennant, who I don't know if you knew Tessa or you ran into her over the years, but she was extraordinary. She set up the Merlin Ecology Fund that became the Jupiter Ecology Fund, worked with people like Mark Campanale in the early years of that. Used to argue with Charles Jacob as to whether Friends Problem Stewardship Trust came first or whether the Merlin Ecology uh, came first. I think, in truth, Charles didn't get there first. Uh, but uh, Tessa's extraordinary, and there's a monument being built uh, in her in her memory. Uh, to to and the idea that she had at the end of her life was to see could you get a symbol of um, responsible investing, ESG investing, in every major financial capital uh, in uh, in the world. So uh, there is, I think, there was that idea of um, could you not do bad was like the first step. And then the shift to going, can we invest in good? So I think if you take the edge of ESG or responsible investing, which is looking for investments that have a positive outcome for people and the planet, you push further out and you come to impact investing, where the sole purpose of the the investment, other than you do want your money back from it, uh, is to directly deliver um, a social impact intentionally. So I think that intentionality is part of it, because you can invest now in offshore wind and just go, we're investing because we think this is a decent financial return. It's not necessarily investing because you think this is the most effective way we could solve climate change. That would be the more intentional one. You could come to the same investment, offshore wind, and say, we believe this is the most effective way of solving climate change, the most effective, cost-effective um solution uh, in energy markets actually just switching off the light when you leave the room. It's like no capital cost for doing that. Uh, you might have a bit of behavior change training. And in fact, if you can, go to uh, go to Global Action Plan. I think there's now a, there's something else, I think it's called Hubbub. But Global Action Plan used to do this thing where they'd get you and they'd say, so before coming to this interview, did you switch off the screen on your monitor? And if you don't, they stick you on an exercise bike that's hooked up to a generator and they make you, in front of all your colleagues, pedal hard enough to power that screen. So what you get is we're still quite physical creatures. 
and you get the muscle memory of how hard your legs had to work. You also get the humiliation of sweating in front of your colleagues uh, while they laugh at you for being rather unfit. And what that does is it imbues in you uh, a behavior change that means you switch off your monitor when you get up from your uh, from your desk. Now, I never actually sat on one of those exercise bikes, but just hearing that story makes me switch off the monitor. So they actually, we did invest in them, not from Big Issue Invest, but from Esme Furlan Foundation. We invested in a team of four people to go around and sell that exercise bike energy uh, energy saving scheme around um, uh, commercial organizations to generate money for the charity Global Action Plan. Worked worked very, very well. Sorry, that was That's amazing. Well, yeah, the, I'm afraid uh, I'd fear I would be on that exercise. Go. I'm afraid I would be on that exercise bike. I'm... But it is that directness of just going, we're directly picking out things that we think will have the most positive impact. And it's a spectrum. I mean, we all want buckets and we want clarity to go, that's ESG, that's responsible investment, that's impact. It's it's a spectrum, ideally just an infinitely flexible spectrum from uh, an oil and gas company, perhaps towards one end of the spectrum. But creating jobs, creating economic development, creating wealth, but with a very large environmental impact uh, for it. And then as you come through your ESG spectrum and your responsible investing spectrum, then, then you come to us at one end of it. So yes, we want definitions. Uh, on the other hand, it's... Uh, it's it's a pretty. I, I tend to think of it as a spectrum. Spectrum, yeah, no, I see that makes sense. So, um, just going back to um, the biggest invest and um, you know the operations of it. You know, where does the um, balance lie? I mean, what do you spend a lot of your time do, doing? Are you fundraising or are you allocating funds? I mean, I think that that very question just is the is the exact thing we do in this uh, in this business. Uh, we raise money and we get it out the door. Then we get it back again, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's probably <laughs> Maybe the third one's the hard one. <laughs> yeah, so mm-hmm. it is it is it is that piece of um, uh, I think that extraordinary resilience and capability of the charity social enterprise sector is is really there. These are typically well run organisations uh, created or run today by extraordinary people. Uh, who work very hard at uh, doing something they do quite well. So if we get it right, generally the money comes back. Uh, We take the risk on it not quite working out, uh, or it will be the same kinds of reasons people run into trouble uh, in in conventional business will be there in our sector. Uh, An overambitious expansion that was not uh, properly planned. Um, a management team that was highly skilled, but not for the change of direction they had. They underestimated the change of direction from running an operation to expanding an operation nationwide. And we did too. So our our responsibility when we get these things wrong. So I think investment management takes up a fair bit of the the time of the, the team. And then we do all of the things the conventional world does. We source experts, our board members get involved. So we are we're very fortunate with the, the expertise that we can draw on to bring to bear on them. Fundraising. Oh, the eternal uh, the eternal the eternal struggle because we are uh, we we pitch up and say um, uh, you know, here are these charities and social enterprises we're in. And just with this conversation today, people say, well, so what is this social enterprise thing that you're 
that you're talking about. Uh, and then, uh, then we we show a range of sectors. You you asked earlier. I'm sorry, I didn't mm. quite answer the question about the whether we were sector agnostic or or specialized in particular sectors. So I think historically we took a service approach. Uh, whatever the financial need of whatever the charity or social enterprise, we will we will meet it. And if we see more demand in a sector than another, then that's where we will where we will go. But we have seen sectors emerging. Um, social care is a big sector. Healthcare, mental health. Uh, we have a. Do you think that's because of lack of government, sort of central government support, and a sort of rolling back of that, or is it because it's sort of supply driven or demand driven? Um, I mean, there's no doubt this um, austerity has led to, you know, to, it, it's something we're all experiencing. Mm. I mean, there's been no increase in real, well, there has been small increase in real, real-term take-home income since the uh, global financial crisis, but that has been a very big price we've all paid. The extraordinary flexible economy has meant that, by this pandemic, we haven't experienced mass unemployment, and that's been a real difference. So the gig economy has played its part for all its downsides of low productivity low low paid work mm. it is it is work so uh, charities and social enterprises have experienced that uh, austerity in some ways um we could be it's like how we counter cyclical enterprises mm. uh, demand does not go away if you're a hospice mm. uh, people need end-of-life care Demand does not go away if you've got a mental health crisis in the middle of an economic downturn. Uh, it still needs um, it still needs support. So I think the demand is there, irrespective of government um, funding for the sector or not. Uh, but it just means the um, uh, there is unmet uh, demand. And just going back to your thought on on um, use of had a, 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 a long sigh in um, when I asked about fundraising, yeah. but finish your thoughts on fundraising and what fundraising. and, and mm-hmm. how, what are the sort of challenges. And I, by the way, would recommend anyone to go to your website. At, mm-hmm. Thank um, you. And 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 you've got some great content up there. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So uh, speaking generally about the social investment sector, uh, there is a. There are a couple of ways of looking at it. The first way of looking at it is to say, well, it's um, who who has backed it? Uh, and it's easy to think, well, it's institutional backers, high net worth individuals, uh, trusts and foundations. But the other way of looking at it is to look at organizations like Triodos Bank, Charity Bank, uh, Ecology Building Society, that are those are deposit-taking institutions, so they can raise money from the public in the way that in the way that we um, we can't directly do, uh, and that those hundreds of millions of pounds, billions of pounds, in the case of Trios, it's ordinary people's ordinary net worth money that they have saved up because in the case of Trios, they've said we want to back renewable energy, we want to back organic agriculture, we we like these things, and that's what Trios invest in. The same for Charity Bank, the same for Ecology Building Society, for their own their own niches. And you can find edgier things. Um, Oxfam in uh, Cafe Direct, they did a share issue. Uh, Tradecraft uh, did a share issue. 
uh, you'll find something called um, shared interest. Uh, and they uh, promote through an industrial provenance society that gives them a particular set of exemptions. And they lend money uh, to Oiko Credit for international microfinance. And they've been doing it since, since, since the 90s, possibly since the 80s. So before international microfinance was a thing or an asset class, they were out there doing it. So ordinary people are a really key part, key backers of impact investing. So then for organizations like ourselves, we operate in the financial services world. So part of my business is FCA regulated. I have unlimited personal liability for the conduct of the business and a very good thing too. Uh, since that, you know, nobody gets to walk away as they did after the last global financial crisis and say other people's money, uh, we're on the hook. And that's a very, that is a very, very good thing. And then there's part of the business that's not regulated, our regular lending operation. Um, we, we, we behave as if it is. In terms of going to the wider public, it's something that we're thinking about for the future and, uh, and do um, guide and edit uh, to make sure I'm not inadvertently <laughs> doing a financial promotion. But that. if you look at crowdfunding websites, uh, you can go to places like FX or Triodos Crowdfunding and you'll find individual projects out there uh, raising raising money for community pubs, uh, community renewable energy projects, all kinds of things are up there raising money. So there's an exemption that lets people invest, I think, 10% of their liquid assets through a crowdfunding um, platform. So we are considering um, issuing a small bond onto a crowdfunding website uh, next year as a way of tapping out to that wider market of people, because we know they like to back the kind of stuff we're doing. And we, we're able to offer them uh, you know, a diverse portfolio in a way they can't with those individual uh, investments. So I think ordinary people and their participation in this market has been, uh, has been really, really important over the years. If you go back to the 1850s, my colleague Jeremy Rogers at Charity Big Society Capital, uh, he's their chief, exec mm -hmm. chief investment officer, he and I present together sometimes and we have this kind of ongoing mm -hmm. competition and we kind of hunt down social investments. So Jeremy hunted down, they were called the 4% societies. People uh, raise money from the general public uh, in the 1850s to build housing for the urban working poor. Uh, and that was a kind of social investment. Um, so I kind of, um, uh, I would say, okay, okay, our earliest one was 1542. Uh, Sir Thomas White set up this Thomas White loan charity to lend to apprentices who were too poor to buy their own tools. So if you couldn't buy your own tools, you couldn't become a master craftsman and your income could not increase. So it still runs today in Leicester. So there's a Thomas uh, White loan charity is running in Leicester to this day, making small loans to people getting into self-employment, which is absolutely amazing. Well, so it predates the uh, Charities Act. It's uh, 1601. Uh, six, six yeah. So yes, actually, yeah, you're quite right. And it was actually a city guild that basically did the back office for it. So all the things we do today about back offices, they were doing in uh, uh, in that uh, in in that time. Daniel, final question. What what advice would you give? I mean, we have a, a younger audience who listens to this, but what advice would you give to to graduates or, or, or school leavers, graduates and, and, and sort of junior associates who are trying to get on in, in, in the um, impact space and sort of social enterprise space? Start. 
<laughs> I think is the first bit. And that was a piece of advice given by a uh, an extremely eminent uh, feminist author talking to uh, a young woman who was asking her how uh, to, to bring about social change. And that was her, her answer. You have to start. And it may just be a small step. And life is a series of small steps. I tend to think with, with regular investing, it's kind of about the, it's about the end point. Uh, you make a shed load of money and then you buy a yacht and then you get happy. I think the great thing about impact investing is it's the journey. You get to enjoy the journey every step of the way because of the extraordinary people that we, uh, that we back in our, in our portfolios all, all up and down the country. I think the starting point, you can't, you can't kind of uh, leap fully formed into, into the world, is um, find a cause that you're passionate about uh, and follow it. And the, the passion may well be to say uh, it might be the environment and getting involved in action or getting involved in organizations, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, the whole range of organizations that are out there, your local wildlife trust. Uh, it may, all of those things are a tangible ways of learning more and finding more. And I look out for them on the CV. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes you get CVs and there's nothing at the bottom. It's like they haven't even saved a puppy. Mm-hmm. And, and they think great commercial skills, but show me something about your, your commitment your, or your understanding of the area that you're, that you're in. So I'd say make those starting points through through volunteering, through supporting those charities and social enterprises that, that we end up supporting through impact investment. And it may not be that uh, impact investing is necessarily the solution that brings about the, uh, the social change in the end. So there's a great organization called Social Finance, and they got involved in, um, they identified with some trusts and foundations the persistent social problems that uh, that just were, were still hanging around, hard to solve. Um, Emily Bolton really got that uh, initiative um, going. And one of the areas they, they landed on was some uh, mental health problems amongst uh, ethnic minority, in particular Afro-Caribbean uh, origin people, uh, that there is this persistent problem. So between the two of us, uh, you know, you're more likely to um, uh, to be diagnosed uh, with a mental health problem early. But I'm more likely, with an ethnic minority background, to be diagnosed late and therefore end up in an acute service that costs a shed load of money. So this persistent problem was there. Why weren't we diagnosing mental health problems properly uh, with that community? So social finance thought, aha, this is a classic. Um, we can invest in the early stage diagnosis that saves money from the health system later on. So let's raise some money and go in and provide the service. So they, they went into to South London, the community grabbed hold of them. Uh, they did an incredibly good job. And what happened in the end was no investment was needed. It was a reorganization of existing budgets by the existing community organizations and health organizations who have been really wanting to solve this problem. And what social finance did was catalyze that, uh, that change. So it's a solution to the social problem we're after. That isn't necessarily an investment one. We play, we play our part. So that was a long-winded way of saying um, start uh, and follow the thing that, you're, that you have that, uh, that passion for. 
because I suppose the final bit there was uh, I was lucky enough to um, stand in queue with David Blood, and we were this was in a previous job, and we were looking for a fund manager, and I said, David, tell me. And David Blood, of course, uh, Generations Investment Management and a stellar career before. So what do you look for in a in a fund manager? So he pointed uh, to his colleague and she listed the 10 things that they were after. And David couldn't quite stop himself from, from then saying, no, I, really, it's just two things. It's uh, track record and passion. Mm-hmm. So find that, uh, you know, find that. Passion sounds like a soft word, but actually it's that that's the thing that takes you through uh, some of the hard, the hard, hard work. Daniel Sato, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Daniel Satar, the CEO of The Big Issue Invest. As I said at the beginning, do check out The Big Issue Christmas Appeal this year at bigissue.com forward slash support the big issue. And if you've enjoyed the episode, then like it and share it. And thank you for listening. Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.